I'm Matthew Stepanek. And I'm Rayanne Haynes. And this is Let's Get Lit, a drunk poetry podcast. In every episode of Let's Get Lit, uh, we interview poets of stature about their work and about the power and relevancy of poetry uh, in order to support and promote it, and as long, along with the arts and literacy. In a conversational style, we're going to enjoy a glass of wine chosen to match the poet's personality and style, uh, while also learning more about each poet and asking why poetry matters to them. Hopefully, we'll be able to maintain our composure <laughs> as we move closer to some form of bacchanal truth. Mm-hmm. So, my name is uh, Matthew Stepanek, as I said earlier, and I'm a freelance writer, editor, and poet based in Edmonton, Alberta. And I'm the editor of Glass Buffalo Literary Magazine, and also the poetry editor for 18 Bridges. I am the author of a collaborative novel called Project Compass, written with three other writers. And I also have a poetry chapbook called Relying on That Body, which is all about season 10 of RuPaul's Drag Race. Very cool. Yeah. And uh, another newer piece of news for me mm-hmm. is that um, alongside Jason Purcell, uh, I am managing Glass Bookshop, which is Edmonton's newest bookshop that promises a curated reading life. And we've started selling uh, books at literary events in the city. Yeah, I'm very excited for, for you and Jason and, and what's coming your way. And really excited for Edmonton and the new bookshop that we're going to yeah. have. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. And I'm Rayanne Haynes. I'm an award-winning fiction author, poet, and the executive director of Edmonton Poetry Festival. Uh, I do have a fictional novel in verse that came out last year titled Stain with the Colors of Sunday Morning. Uh, But this isn't about us. So we would like to thank uh, our sponsors and our presenters before we begin. And we would like to specifically thank wine expert Gravinder Batia for his generosity because he sponsored the wine for all of our episodes out of his own private cellar, which is really cool. Let's Get Lit is presented with the Writers Guild of Alberta, and we're grateful for their support in promoting and sharing this podcast with yes. their members um, because they do a lot of wonderful things and for um, promoting and working with writers in Alberta. So, they do. Uh, it's great to align with them on this. And uh, as you're listening to us uh, ramble and drink, Mm-hmm. Um, and you know our wonderful guest uh, feel free to share your thoughts on our conversation with us on Twitter at let's underscore lit and so uh, as Ryan and I are actually not alone right now no uh, I feel like I need to <laughs> introduce the other poet in the room uh, Jenna Butler uh, is our special guest today and she is the author of three critically acclaimed books of poetry Seldom Seen Road Wells and Aphelion, an award-winning collection of ecological essays, a profession of hope, farming on the edge of the Grizzly Trail. And Butler's current work is the travelogue Magnetic North, uh, Sea Voyage to Svalbard, uh, which launched in 2018 with the University of Alberta Press, and that's mostly what we'll be discussing today. So I guess thank you, Jenna, for joining us today, and welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Excellent. So our wine for today's podcast reflect not only the wine that we're going to be drinking, but also the winery. Um, When I researched wines, I kept coming back to Jenna as a person and her commitment to building things and to learning. We know and we will talk more later about the fact that Jenna and her husband have built from scratch a fully off-grid, sustainable and organic farm, which they also hope to turn into a writer's retreat one day, which is very cool um and so I had a lot of I had a lot of trouble picking just one wine with Jenna because of her um different styles of writing and she's such a a vibrant person that um we chose both a Pinot Noir and a Pinot Noir Rosé for our chat with Jenna today so (laughs) we're going to have a lot of drink a a lot of (laughs) a lot of wine to drink we've already had a lot of drink (laughs) Uh, both of the wines come from the 50th Parallel Estate Winery in Okanagan, uh, in the Okanagan Valley in BC. And what I thought was really neat was that, like Jenna's farm, the 50th Parallel Estate was built from scratch. So in 2009, the couple that owned the winery hand planted their first 10 acres of vines. 
And I, I know from reading Jenna's blog and talking to her that her and her husband did the same thing with their place, hand planting everything out there every day. Um, well, that the owners had to engineer a planting machine to turn the needs of their rocky steep property uh, and are now planting uh, an impressive 50 acres under vine. So I think that, you know, later Jenna can talk more about the needs of adapting or about adapting to the needs of the land. But uh, the two wines, so we have the, the Pinot Noir Rosé, and that's a, a mix of fresh young garden strawberries, guava, and yellow bell pepper combined. Um, and it, it has a long, refreshing finish. It comes from the touch of a silky Pinot skin tannin extracted from uh, a long and slow ferment. Uh, but Jenna's lighthearted soul and kind yet carefully thoughtful manner makes it, made it an excellent wine to sample with her. Um, and I think that her natural inclination to take on new challenges with, with fervor and gusto fit perfectly with this blend. Um, and then the second wine that we chose is the Pinot Noir from the winery. And that's a more full-bodied wine from a dry vintage that uh, shows off developed flavors of dark red fruits and ripe stickery staccato cherries, black raspberries, blackberries, uh, dried rosemary and sage. I mean, there's so many earthy mineralities in this wine. It's, it's quite lovely. And I think that Jenna's love for the land and her sublime use of language and contemplative nature made this a natural fit. Um, so I can really clearly envision her sitting next to uh, a wood-burning stove in her off-grid farmhouse this fall sipping this wine. Um, but I think that, you know, Matthew and I wanted to like really make clear that the, that wines that the wines that we chose were really specifically related to the fact that this winery was also an off-grid winery. And so all of those aspects fit with why we would chose these, choose these wines for Jenna. Okay. So Jenna, um, you know, we, full disclosure, we've had a relationship and a friendship over, over a number of years. And, and you and I had a, a conversation at LitFest. Um, but at, during LitFest, we were talking about the fact that you and your husband travel on average the distance of Edmonton to Vancouver every week mm -hmm. because you're traveling from Red Deer to, you know, you're a huge part of the Edmonton literary community to Edmonton. You're traveling to up north for your farm. Mm -hmm. So uh, what do you think about when you're alone in your car or what do you do <laughs> when you're alone in your car? Right. So, okay. So full disclosure, when I, I don't always do the driving on my own, which is really lovely. Um, my husband still substitute teaches in Edmonton, so he's up and down a lot. So when we travel together, we actually read to each other, which I really love. We take um, turns kind of reading whatever book is on the go, our car book. Um, you know, if we're going between the farm and Red Deer, so it'll be like once a week. So we were reading just recently Peter Volabin's, um The Hidden Lives of Trees, which was a fantastic book. He's a forester in the Black Forest of Germany, talking about the insider info he has on trees and stuff. Mm. Wow. It's really neat to, to talk, to, to kind of um, talk about his work and just read it with someone else and have these amazing discussions yeah. about, he knows that, that ecosystem so well. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah. And when I'm on my own, which I am a fair amount running up and down, um, I compose poetry in my head, not on my voice memo, <laughs> on the phone. <laughs> Try not to be texting while driving. Uh, <laughs> Jenny gets arrested for a podcast. No. <laughs> um, they, let's, let's give them your license plate number and so no. they can like watch for you and doing things. Yeah, that rogue poet. Right. No. That rogue poet. I love the idea of a road poet, poet though. Rogue poet. I was going to say rogue poet, but rogue oh. poet also. <laughs> the rogue road works. poet. Either one works. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I'm that person who's like talking to myself in the car on my own going up and down the highway. So I compose stuff. I hash over ideas for, for mm -hmm. essays or I teach as well. So, you know, like I run over, I run over, I run through my, <laughs> run over my students. No, I, run, <laughs> I run through ideas from my classes. Okay. My students are going to listen to this podcast and think, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, they're going to, they're going to, I mean, I'm sure that your students love you i'm, I'm <laughs> quite sure be like that's part for the question <laughs> it's just interesting that's like awesome. all the almost illegal things that we've 
caught you in in a couple of minutes. Yeah, so I, I appreciate that, you know, you know, let's get lit does not condone drinking and driving. No. We or do not. writing poems and driving. So thank you, Jenna, there for scaring everybody straight. <laughs> uh, we'll find you. Someone will find you. Um how it always goes. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm Criminals to get, get back caught. on the highway. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Someone else is driving tonight. Yes. Yeah. Yay. Um, mm-hmm. Well, maybe we should talk a little bit, uh, since we are going to be talking about Magnetic North, mm-hmm. can you, um, you know, before we jump into our big, huge discussion, can you tell us a little bit about how the book came about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the book came out of a writer-in-residence position I held on a Barkentine sailing ship back in mm. 2014 at the Norwegian Arctic Circle. So I was up there for two weeks over the summer solstice. Mm. Um, so 24-hour daylight on the Arctic Ocean uh, with 30 other writers and musicians and artists and scientists and polar bear guards and <laughs> the ship's crew, but people from all over the world. Mm. And we were kind of sardined into like 600 square feet of cabin space for two weeks. Wow. <clears throat> and it was, yeah, it was phenomenal. It was an incredible residency and also... Um, it was incredible to get the chance to see the landscape, but it was also sort of in terms of interpersonal relationships. For someone who's fairly introverted, it was uh, at, at times pretty trying being in a very, very small space. Yeah. So you get to learn yes. a lot about your colleagues, and some of them are still really good friends. And so the book came out of that that trip. So looking at the mm-hmm. Arctic landscape and contemplating kind of the interpersonal relationships and dynamics on a very small vessel mm-hmm. and thinking about the explorer narratives that are out there that are predominantly male mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so thinking in terms of just people in general crammed into this small space in a very at times very hostile environment I can't imagine being up there over the winter it was the 24-hour daylight was pretty intense and also connecting that endangered landscape back to the boreal forest of the, of northern Alberta, which is mm-hmm. what I call home, mm-hmm. and which is threatened in a different kind of way. So up on the ship in Svalbard, we were every time we made landfall, we would pick garbage because the ocean currents from around the world just drop garbage on Spitsbergen, and we, so we were really aware of the human impact, even though there weren't that many people there. Mm-hmm. So we, this kind of barren, very much so, landscape was covered in garbage. There was, well, not covered in garbage, but there was a lot on the beaches. Like, you, you'd make oh. landfall for an afternoon, you'd probably bring two garbage bags back. Wow. Oh, wow. And wow. so we were constantly loading up the ship, just bags of garbage. And, you know, in, in some ways it felt good that we were keeping that place tidied up. In other mm-hmm. ways, it was shocking how much uh, human trash makes its way halfway across the world and ends up there. Mm-hmm. But it's a peculiar landscape because it is, at the same time, it is barren and vast. It's also peopled. And mm. it's got these really visible layers of history because it's the Arctic landscape and it's desiccating and dry. And so any remains that are left there are still there. So you have the whaling outposts from the 1800s mm-hmm. where the wood was brought over from places like Russia because there's no wood on Svalbard. Mm. So the wood was all brought over to build the whaling stations mm. or cannibalized from other buildings or boats. And then you have the Russian mining colonies of the 20s to some of them the present day. They've been abandoned and recolonized. And then you have the tourist towns and the tourist settlements. Hmm. And so like layer and layer and layer and layer of history. Just everything is still there. Yeah. Yeah. And so many countries have had their, their finger in the pie, as it were, on Svalbard. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's where, the, that's where the book came out of. It was like trying to cram so much of that experience, that really intense sort of 24-hour day, like two weeks into this little tiny book. Wow. Well, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful book. Thank you. Um, well, yeah, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about it in the podcast, but do you want to start us off with a reading? And Matthew and I were thinking night. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'd love to hear it. Okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So night, um, one of the things I should just preface, one of the things I mentioned was 24-hour daylight. So darkness became, and I mentioned this when we were talking earlier for the podcast, um, that darkness kind of became its own character uh, over the course of the book. And I didn't start Mm. out to write that. It just, 24-hour daylight does something to your body and your circadian rhythm gets kind of destroyed. So 
night and the privacy of darkness and what it does to you kind of psychologically not having that space to retreat to. Mm-hmm. Again, especially in 600 square feet where you are around other people at all times. You share a cabin, you share a common space. You're never apart from anyone else because there are polar bears around. You cannot be alone. Oh my gosh, polar right? bears. On, on, when you're on land, you, you are guarded with guards with rifles. And we're going to talk about that <laughs> after too. We are going to talk about so, that. So yeah, yeah it's like, it's, it's literally like a YouTube channel sort of live streaming from your living room 24 hours a day. It's intense being on public wow. display all the time. It yeah. just reminds me of Lost a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> polar bear guard. There's only ever one polar bear. I thought you were going to say Walking Dead. Oh, great. <laughs> oh my God. Like, I do not watch Walking Dead. I prefer shows that were like... Over 10 years old. <laughs> okay, man, yeah. your boat wasn't that bad. Man, <laughs> my friends are going to be listening to the boat going, ah, oh, she's calling us the walking dead. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'll read Night, and it starts off with this epigraph from Monty Reed. Mm. Declension stalks the snow cover. It wonders how many people it is, how many mouths. There's no place to hide. Night is non-existent, circadian cranked to overtime. No twilight, no dusk. No dawn. Same abbreviated shadows on the road. We jitter, grateful for anything that dims the light. Snow squalls, cloud banks, duty-free Svalbard whiskey. Something in us paces, sleepless, sits on its haunches and observes morning rituals of black coffee and ye toast, uneasy company. Svalbard bleaches its bones four months of the year, stretched thin by sun like a drum on a frame. Its wild places crack in the heat, tundra canvassed out, pinned, strained. 24 hours a day, the hunt. Reindeer on the Campion Flats, polar bears along the beaches. Box dens green to uncanny mounds, small death forests visible from the air. So much sun that entrails clapped blue against the rock morph in an instant to chickweed, pygmy buttercup, Svalbard poppy. Blood runs amok, sun-spurred, no easy resting place. Birds at all hours, a ferment of turns over stone couch nests, fulmars ricocheting from the cliffs. Inner harbor, mid-evening, 14 belugas breaching, heat calling them to the surface like bergs on a slow turn. The darkness becomes mythic, vein shot, red light through pinched eyelids. We are bitter, amped. Our bodies want to move, to work, to love. We burn out in three-day stints, sleep through afternoons, emerge into perpetual midday. Tremors in our hands, daylight bubbling in bloodstreams. What we took for granted? The relief of the dark. How concealment, too, is a sort of blessing. Aboard ship, dark becomes an interior country. 30 people in 600 square feet, the middle of the Greenland Sea, the top of the world. We learn what the explorers knew, that darkness is not a right, but an indulgence. You do what you need to find it. The bar is open as long as the sun is up. Mm. Love, too, is a kind of darkness, a momentary way of abandoning the body. Forget where you left yourself. Don't look for tracks. The wilderness is in the darkness, and the darkness is internal layered over contents under pressure, coalescing into something much less human, more keen. If darkness is the fringe land, sidestep the mirror, all the world in your eyes staring back. Wow. Mm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we we started with night, so I I want to talk about darkness and light (laughs) in the poem. Uh, and in the collection itself, because I'm interested in the idea that you said that darkness became its own character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and normally, like, in, in poetics, you know, there's this positivity around light, and, like, you know, the negativity is darkness, and even in <laughs> sadness, and how often we associate those two things together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, in this, you're talking about darkness as desire, mm-hmm. and love, and indulgence mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit more about your experience in you know existing in this permanent light space and what mm. you did to yeah. escape <laughs> sure. how this came I cannot imagine living up there all through the summers I think I would probably lose 
<laughs> was left in my mind at the time. But yeah. <laughs> or, or over the winters when you've got six months of darkness, that too, I think, would be <clears throat> pretty fraught. But, I mean, I was thinking about that very idea when I was driving up here, knowing that we're heading into the dark time of the year, yeah. right? When, for us, ooh, five or six hours of daylight, oh no. <laughs> and at the same time, it's just like, oh, it kind of crushes your soul a little bit. But uh, this, that whole idea that I didn't start out to write dark as a character is just something that I, I, while I was thinking about the trip after the fact, I realized that the entire time I had literally been vibrating and it got worse as I went through the days. And it's because your circadian rhythm is getting disrupted. Your sleep, even when you sleep like six or seven hours, you don't feel like you've slept and your body is just on all the time. And it didn't help that everywhere we went, they didn't seem to have blackout curtains. Um, so, geez. <laughs> like, so the rooms had these beautiful like gingham curtains and things and like brilliant sun <laughs> shining on your face at three in the morning. Oh. So. And what did you do to prevent the light? I slept with socks on my face. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's like, what do you need to do? Like, put your pillow on your head. Put your socks on your head. But just trying to make, uh-huh. trying to make darkness for yourself because you don't realize, I think, how much... I mean, we take for granted that mm. kind of coziness at this mm-hmm. time of year. Yeah, we know the dark's coming and it can be heavy and oppressive and seasonal affective disorder. And, you know, like there are a lot of people that really, really suffer. And yet there are those times where you have camaraderie and you have companionship. And, and it's almost like, it, yeah, the season of hibernation. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and there can yeah. be comfort in that as well. Like that dark space turns into a space of light. But, yeah, it, it became something kind of mythic this darkness that we were chasing that we couldn't find i had colleagues who who drank a lot to deal with the 24 hour <laughs> daylight and you know as people coped with it in, their, in different ways and we were on public display all the time not like <laughs> all the time showering on public but, Jeez. <laughs> but oh, we, we shared it was that kind of cruise <laughs> We shared, the, the we, we, shared, we shared cabins so we like i my bunkmate and i we, we were in eight by eight foot cabins you'd have two bunks and a little tiny bathroom and that was all the space you had you're literally that was it and yeah. then there was the common room and then there was the deck and that was great except when you're under sail and it's minus 15 it's really cool to be on deck all the time so we were packed into these spaces and people are missing home and people are frightened and people are angry or personalities kind of grind against each other and you get friction and we're all going through these same routines very publicly with no privacy yeah you know how it is when you're in a place where you're worried or you're stressed out or you don't know how you're going to deal with the situation or particular people and there's nowhere to go to get that privacy you can't just retire in the evening and just take yourself off room because your room isn't your own nope and also there's no darkness you can't even go up on deck and not assume you're going to be seen because it's the Mm. arctic and it's snowy and it's 24 hour daylight and it's like being under a searchlight all the time so dark emerged as this character as something that i longed for and started thinking about all the ways we go you know we try to achieve that darkness in that type of situation yeah Yeah. Hmm. it almost seems to become like the panopticon like how you're always visible to other people, and mm-hmm. then you're always visible outside. And oh yeah, yeah. The polar bears can see you twenty four hours a the day. Polar bears. <laughs> yeah. They can. I want to know. I, there's stuff about the polar bears I want to ask after. <laughs> um, so, how did you come across the writer in residence mm-hmm. position, and what was the experience of writing the book like for you? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so first, how did I come across the position? I applied for it like any other residency. And, so and I, you just researched and found it? Yeah. Or did someone tell you about it? Or No, I was going through, um, I forget now the list that I had gone through. It was mm. just talking about residencies around the world. And, and I had been on a few and I saw that one. I thought, oh, I've always wanted to go see the Arctic. And then mm. I thought, Norwegian Arctic, huh? That would be really neat. I'd like to yeah. see something very, very different from the Canadian Arctic. Um, although some similar mm. through lines. And so I, you, you have to apply with a project, same as you would to, you know, BAMP Center or CHL right. or anything. Right. Um, and so originally I had applied with a project to write about the, the male polar explorers in the Arctic by air, talking about the, the dirigible or the blimp explorations of the Arctic in the 20s. Because mm. there was a pretty spectacular blimp crash um, with an Italian airship captain and general right on Spitsbergen, right where mm. we were traveling. And I thought, what are the chances that I, I'm actually going to see like the mooring mast of this this yeah. blimp that crashed oh, there? Oh yeah. 
And so I thought, well, these are great stories. Arctic by air, a totally different kind of air. Um, and the story of the crash, I mean, the guys were dumped out onto the Arctic ice. The, the, the basket separated from the blimp. The blimp took off with half the crew, never seen again. The basket dumped out by Nee Allison, which is the northernmost settlement on Spitsbergen. Yeah. Dumped half the crew onto the ice, including the general, and apparently his dog. I don't know why he had his dog with him. Well, Who wants to leave you know, their you dog can't leave your dog. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much you believe that, but anyway. Brought his dog to the Arctic. Why not? What could go wrong? <laughs> he had a crate of rations, a tent, and a radio fell out oh, on the ice. Really? Like, if you're going to get dumped on the Arctic ice, like, what better way? So it was the first polar air rescue mm. mission, in, uh, international polar air rescue mission, mm. to pull these guys in off the ice. So I was going to write about that, and because there's some great stories. And then I, I got there, and I looked at the landscape, and I started noticing how all the stories were the male narrative, and I wanted right. to dig more, and I thought, there are women here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was meeting the, like, the polar bear guards, I was meeting women in long European settlement, and talking to them, and saying, what's life like here? And reading little snippets every once in a while at the museum, you'd, you'd see like a women's exhibit, or you'd have like a woman in a byline. And I started thinking, I want to write about that. So yeah. the book became about the women's narrative. Which, which we're going to ask you about more, because I'm really drawn to that. Um, well, yeah. can we talk yeah. a little bit more maybe about the, once we get into the deeper dive, but yeah. um, at least the, the, the style and, and form in this collection... Mm-hmm. Because um, it gets billed through the publisher as a as a travelogue, mm-hmm. you know, with poetic mediation meditations, mm-hmm. med- meditations, with poetic meditations. Maybe um, mediations. I've like <laughs> yeah, I know mediations. Yeah, like any, you're mediating yourself in the land. Like, you that would have been better. Um, <laughs> take that to revise catalog copy. Yeah, um, and uh, I know that Ray and I had both talked about this that we thought of the collection as more of prose poems yeah um especially because everything you know is a short poetic exploration of all these little details and stuff so you know what sort of inspired the the form and and how you wrote it yeah Mm -hmm. and i'm so glad you call them prose poems because to me they're prose poems and when i was working with my editor he was saying they're kind of like little essays and so he and there are places where he told me to extend and and i was happy with how they turned out but to me they're prose poems they're prose poems thank you for for saying that we're here to acknowledge that yeah. it's a safe <laughs> They're space now for poetry. Poetry. Tree. poems. Yeah. <laughs> Not mini essays. Really, really mini essays. Um, but yeah, I, I was the, the uh, first couple of pieces in the book, when I started crafting them, I was messing around with free verse poems. And when I write free, free verse, I tend to have quite clipped lines and I tend to play with space on the page a lot because I'm trying to play with breath. One of the things I'm usually really interested in is how disconnected the body gets from page poetry Mm. and I think when I'm talking with my students they say that's one of the things that when they're reading a poem they tend to engage with the head instead of the body except for you know if the poem has kind of like a heart line that just skewers you Mm -hmm. but they forget that the body's involved so I tend to mess with spacing quite a bit on the page because I'm trying to make the reader breathe a certain way by having to read across the gaps Right, and yeah. by doing so, you feel something in your body. Like I can make you feel quite terrified by the way I use the spacing in a page. Because by the time you read to the end of the page, you're suddenly out of breath because you've had to make all these jumps and gaps uh-huh. on the page. And I thought the Arctic landscape, though, has so many gaps. It's a space of these huge vastnesses, and I didn't want to have that type of writing. So the prose mm. poetry worked really well I think for for me for what I was trying to represent with the landscape because it allowed me to pack in all of the detail it allowed me to do this 24-hour daylight kind of like gather all this stuff up that I'm seeing and push it out to the reader all this description but not have to represent in the gaps the vastnesses of that space that makes sense yeah it's so interesting I'm really really intrigued by that description and how you pulled away from the vastness of it to put mm-hmm. it on the page in a much more condensed and um, almost cyclical kind of mm-hmm. description. Yeah, I think it's just because I couldn't have conceived of that space before I went there. Yeah. I mean, I had a, a, a kind of a mental picture of it and what I had looked at online, but when you get there, it just blows you wide open because it's just 
you're so far away from people and even in the mm-hmm. middle of summer everything is so snow covered and you can very easily do yourself to death by you know jumping out of the boat into the ocean you'd think it would be innocuous but you can freeze yourself to death doing that did you jump so, out of the boat into the ocean? I did not jump out of the boat. <laughs> I, did, I, did go, I did go swimming, but you have to wade in from the beach, and it is really cold. But so, you know, like mm. I, was, I was trying to capture so much of that space and render it in a way that was easily accessible. So I didn't want people have to, to fight over the gaps already yeah. in the poem. Yeah. I figured that would be too much, having to deal with all of the, the detailed descriptions plus the space of the words on the page. So well, and the language that you use yeah. is so rich and fills so much, I think, inside a person when they're reading it that you, you didn't need those gaps. I'm really glad you, yeah. you say that, yeah, because yeah. I was trying not to have the, the form kind of work against the content, I guess. Right, so, right. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, can we talk about the length of some of the sections? Yeah. And sure. how, um, you know, like there's shorter ones that are only, you know, three parts, and like mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. of... I guess, like, the larger poetic essay as mm-hmm. a section. And then, mm-hmm. you know, there's each um, separate image within. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. you know, what decided those lengths or how many numbered parts <laughs> of each section there would be? Um, I, 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 I kind of, I strove for consistency and then I thought, nah, because <laughs> within, within, I like the numbered sections because then I can have, you know, three or four different parts in a section I could take one particular thing that I'm looking at and look at it from three or four different angles or tell interconnected pieces of a story. But uh, I found it really hard. It's still poetry, and it's really hard to say to the poem, you're done now, when it doesn't feel yeah. done. Yeah. So yeah. some sections are <clears throat> seven or eight, you know, six or seven parts, and some sections are three parts. And there were mm-hmm. places where I tried to kind of shoehorn in more stuff to, to make the sections balance out. And you know how it is with a poem. You get that kind of after effect where there's a few lines just kind of dragging their tails at the end yeah. of the poem, and you have to cut them off. So, yeah, some of the sections got reduced. So, still prose poetry. <laughs> it's poetry. Still fighting for it to be what it is. It yeah. is what it is. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Travel log is capacious, though, right? You can fit a lot of things in that sack, whatever the travel log is. The yeah. sack of travel log? Sack of travel log. <laughs> oh. So patriarchal. Kind of, sounds kind of nice. Yeah, like I just... <laughs> I only think of like it took an 18th century literature course and I feel like it's the only time I've ever used the word travelogue and so like when it ever comes up since then I'm just always like uh I just like, had a vision of like traveling on WestJet airline and because <laughs> you're gonna write a travelogue <laughs> don't forget your sack they're charging extra for sacks now yeah you can bring, they are if yes. you have a really heavy sack you can't bring that on the plane you have to oh, Matthew. keep that tucked away. <laughs> oh, Matthew. Let's jump and maybe ask Jenna to read another poem before we move into uh, kind of the next larger context of our of our discussion today. And, and the rosé. And, <laughs> and we will open up the bottle of rosé. So... Um, so what we're gonna, so we're gonna have Jenna read from Ornithomancy to lead us into the next section of our discussion today. Do you right. want to take that and sure, absolutely, go with that, Jenna? And so Ornithomancy, of course, is that type of divination done through the flights of birds, and that was one of the mm. things in the Arctic that totally struck me was the amazing bird life. And because it was over the summer solstice, all the seabirds were coming in to land and. The breeding was just crazy. Mm. There were eggs everywhere you looked, and the terns nest right on the road. And they will attack you when you mm. get close. So half of the, you know, you were navigating on land, you were cu- ducking and covering to stay away from the terns because they, they land on your head and grab your hair. Oh. Um, so it was one, just, wow. just trying to navigate that landscape. You couldn't walk in a straight line. You'd have to go around the turn. So part of it was navigating all these birds. It was kind of Hitchcockian at times. Wow. And also, um, there's a section in this prose poem where there's an underlying narrative I mentioned of this mm-hmm. women's narrative that comes yes. through. Yes. And being in the Arctic as a woman who had been told not too long before that uh, you can no longer have a shot at having five children. So mm. I had just learned that. So mm. there was that sense yeah. of everywhere you look, there was like life, 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 life. And I was sitting there going, huh, I still haven't sort of processed my own news. Mm. 
So Ornithomancy starts off, all of them start with an epigraph. This one's by Kathleen Jamie, amazing writer. In September, countless sand and house martins jazz above the river, taking insects from the surface, from the air, thousands of birds kissing the river farewell. They creak, a sound like the air rubbing against itself. Summer is everything they know. They're preparing themselves, sensing in the shortening days a door they must dash through before it shuts. Pleated bone flutes open against rock. Arctic turn caught, sunning, breast jimmied open by the rummagings of the fox. Little left but the half-moon curve of her beak, a startlement of pinions. The sun is directly overhead 24 hours a day. Death leaps at me with the intensity of searchlights. Bones bleach and fissure over a matter of weeks, the only shade directly beneath where the blood slips, pools, sprouts a small tuft of grass almost overnight. Death is immediate, and life in this pressure chamber of northern summer is nearly as quick. The terns nest with a sort of desperation, clenched in their thousands among the stones, splayed and vulnerable. My walk, a drunken weave, skirting that nest and this, the airborne ire of mothers. Live wire buzzing, the young that do hatch are raised in a ratcheting of fear, 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 haptic filaments needling through the spaces in their bones. Off Spitzbergen, Fanshawe lifts its dolerite skirts ribbed with whalebone and eggshells. Guillemots rasp into the air in their thousands, adamantine hammer of sound that drills in somewhere behind the eyes. I feel the birds as much as see them. In my blood is a new element, a battering of wings, mad clangor. The land is contoured in a way that breeds sound. It sloughs from the bird cliffs, heaves over the water in a rich, acrid roll. Along the shoreline, sound clatters between the growlers, barks chips off the larger bergs. All through the afternoon, champagne tinkle of ice chips as the slabs greet each other across narrow channels in the green. Wind burned, eyes closed, this. Beneath the keening of bergs, a deeper thresh of glaciers calving, creaking with sun. Sound of earth, her bones, wide russet bowl of hips splaying open. From these sear flanks, her desiccating body, what a sea change is born. Magdalena Fjordan at the solstice, the scree slopes greening overnight as the little ox come in from the sea, fast and fetid life clamping itself to the stones. Blue eggs erupt from the cliffside like a party trick, their shadows sewn beneath them. Imagine what it is to be called through the bones, daylight playing itself out in your marrow. This knowing that draws you in from hundreds of miles out to sea, slices you cleanly through the spindrift to shore. What it must be to understand the pull in your blood this way, an old, old calling. What it must be like to know your direction without fear. Eggs that mysteriously appeared and vanished again, palmed, fainted, perfect diversion, child's birthday trick. When your nieces hunted up your sleeve, small hands darting like voles, how the laughter would roll out of you while the secret stayed in, stayed put. Somewhere was a prize and you weren't telling. Better than a chocolate shell, something real. You imagined it held delicately against your teeth, your tongue, certain that when they pried your lips apart, the secret would scattershot into the world like a small bird. You held my hips that way, as though you were framing sky, permitting egress, flight. As though my body, too, could be palmed, appeared and disappeared like a vaudeville trick. Somewhere a small skittering of claws, tattoo of wings. What we didn't know, then, how winter breaks down a nest from the outside in, weathering its bindings to silver, the way the cage of the body can break open at a touch and nothing flies forth. No sound, no tumult of rattled feathers, just empty air and light. Uh, thank you so much for that, Jenna. That was really beautiful. Okay. It was, yeah. and I'm going yeah. to introduce a short wine break. Oh, and wine break! <laughs> yeah, we opened up the rosé now. Oh, so, I'm excited to give a taste, mm-hmm. have a taste of this one. It's yes, the good part. And good part. Jenna, you just you watch and you say, "Oh, red. good parts. <laughs> That's good. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> I don't say when for my wine. <laughs> it just keeps going. It's, it's more like, brim. It's like why. <laughs> 
But then why not? You know? Wine, why, why not? Why not? <laughs> oh my. That's how I feel about things. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Jenna, with the last reading, I mean, it was so uh, powerful and evocative. And the book really focuses a lot on the female narrative you talked about earlier, how mm-hmm. you had originally thought that you were going to be writing about the male the mm-hmm. male story mm-hmm. and um, instead you you know you you discovered that the female narrative was more urgent and more imperative yeah. so can you talk to us a little bit about that and how mm-hmm. you came to that realization and mm-hmm. you know it seemed like the male narrative was too easy and mm. not in the sense of downplaying what the the polar explorers went through because I can only imagine having been on that boat for two weeks during the summer what it would have been like for you know a season in one of those boats or being bound in the ice for for a winter but Mm. easy in the sense that all the narratives that I found were male and so the information was readily available and even though it felt like there were some really good stories there and some of that narrative made its way into the collection but the focus totally shifted because the women that I was running into Uh, on Spitsbergen and these little narratives that would pop up here and there in displays and the people that I would talk to in town these women were amazing it's a hard life the men predominantly have a script they're the miners they're you know involved in tourism or they run a company or whatever and the women don't a lot of times they come along as family they're occasionally raising children Mm. miners wives they're in sometimes really isolated settlements and they have no script, they have no way of kind of coordinating their days. So the, the men have these particular expectations and the women just have this, this vastness to deal with. It's not just the landscape, it's in the roles have changed and the community mm. has changed. And some of those settlements are really tight-knit communities and yet they're, they're, I think they're that way out of necessity. Like mm-hmm. I think for a lot of the women that's a survival tactic. So they were strong, they were really amazing people, and I respected them a lot. I got to talk to and got to know the three polar bear guards that were on our boat. Yeah, I want to know more. (laughs) Polar bear guards. And we kind of called them the Vikings with high-powered rifles. (laughs) They seriously were. Like One had amazing dreadlocks and everything. It was... It was like that TV show, Vikings. (laughs) Some of the women off of that. I just thought, you know, you put them in the 21st century and give them a... I've actually rifle. not watched that show, but I I need to because now you just I'm like, so oh, drawn to it. Yeah. <laughs> my family's obsessed with it, and that usually is enough of a sign that I probably wouldn't like uh, it. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, 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 yeah. okay. okay. I've seen it. Okay, yeah. Hmm. Um, but they were just really strong women. They were very grounded in the land. They were um, they weren't from that landscape. A lot of people who are on Spitsbergen, they come from away and they're drawn to that landscape. Mm. And so it's very, very multicultural. And so you've got these women from around the world who call themselves sort of, they're partly from the Arctic, but they're partly from somewhere else. They're partly from Spain, or they're partly from mainland Norway, they're partly from wherever it is, New Zealand. And they split their time. A lot of them split the dark season. They go back home. And then during the tourist season, they're back on Spitsbergen. Is it, a bi- is it a big tourist not like culture? A, not like a huge tourist culture just because this the town itself is so small right but they do get a lot of the cruise ships now starting to come through so that's an element of the arctic that wasn't there as much 10 years ago hmm. and so there too i mean the environment is starting to shift because you've got these huge cruise liners pulling through you've got more of the national geographic expeditions coming in um but yeah the women's stories were just were something i didn't expect it's such an an odd place not just the landscape but also the way the human lifespan is curtailed. So they don't have a ton of medical facilities there. So mm. if you're a woman who's about to give birth and it's not an emergency, you're often sent off the island to somewhere where there's better better health care. So maybe mm. in mainland Norway. And there's no way of burying you after you die there because permafrost, mm. oh. although that might shift because the Arctic's warming. So you've got this kind of curtailed life. Birth, death, both are kind of shunted out. If you're unemployed, you can't stay there because there's not a huge social net. So mm-hmm. it's this community that really, it's tight-knit and it functions together, but also it's got these kind of limbs that are locked off. Mm-hmm. And so I think particularly that impacts women's narratives, you know, thinking about the whole birth cycle and, yeah. you know, the, and raising a family in those areas. So the whole book shifted 
rapidly and I was much happier with where it ended up because it felt like it felt more true that was something that was pulling me mm-hmm. and I was very glad that that I mean the men appear in the book in counterpoint to the women but they're just they become the footnote mm-hmm. and that was right. something that I wanted right. to do like yes this is the acknowledged history shunt you know off to the right. side mm-hmm. although there is one male Sasha who's <laughs> pyramid <laughs> yeah the two the tourist guide at Pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, a real character that drew me in for sure. Yeah, he sort yeah. of embodied Russia, you know, <laughs> fresh almost a century ago with the great coat and the hat and everything, the fur hat, and um, just an, an amazing character. And I think he would have to be because uh, Pyramid is technically a ghost town. Now, there's two major Russian mining colonies on Svalbard one is Pyramid and one is Barentsburg. Mm. Barentsburg has been. I don't think it was ever really shut down. It might have been around the Second World War, but it's been repopulated. Uh, Pyramidon was definitely closed down around the Second World War. There are fewer than 20 men, no women, who live there year-round. Russian expats. And predominantly, they pick metal and they pack it onto the resupply ships to Murmansk and send it back over the ocean. And that is what they do. And they are there for various reasons. Personal Mm. reasons. Why would you want to exile yourself to a former Russian mining colony? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They've got yeah. some stories, but yeah. uh, language barriers, so I didn't really get to learn yeah. a lot of them. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have a, a favorite uh, moment um, from the time that with the, your, with the women that you met? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> um, that okay. you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, do they feel comfortable? No. <laughs> Um, no, I think they would probably just laugh. Mm. Uh, so, like I said, they were Vikings with high-powered rifles. They were just phenomenal women. A couple of them had flaming red hair. They were And these are the polar bear the guards. The polar bear guards. <laughs> yeah, they I were, mean, I'm just so intrigued by this. They were just incredible. Every time we went to the, to the we made landfall, we went to the mainland, um, the, the polar bear guards would have to go out and triangulate. And so the artists and scientists had to stay within the triangle. They were on guard at all, all times because a polar bear can scent you from over 10 kilometers away. Wow. And if they're hungry, they'll find you. If they're bored, they'll find you. They'll find you because they can. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple of experiences where there were polar bears, you know, swimming on some of the drift ice and one on the shore. And they were very aware that we were there. So the polar bear guards were constantly out there and they were constantly kind of testing themselves and keeping active. They would do this kind of parkour almost around the ship's deck every morning. Just wow. like not touching the deck, they would climb on the rigging. They would climb around the edge of the deck just to keep in shape, and so makes me want to go on my five mile <laughs> run a little more. <laughs> so, so one day, this memory, oh my goodness! So one day we just come in off the beachhead, and the zodiac was taking us out to the ship. Um, zodiac went in, got the last group of artists, and we suddenly realized polar bear guards. Where are they? And we could hear them back on the beach. <clears throat> we got up to the boat. And they were these little specks in the distance. And then we're just like, are they not wearing anything? We could just see like little flesh-colored specks. And they were going Arctic swimming. They just, we were off on the boat and they just struck down and they were swimming out in the Arctic Ocean. Apparently one of them is like an Arctic swimmer. That's what she does. She competes. In the Arctic Ocean that you will freeze to death in. If you, if you jump in. If you jump in. Yeah. And so that's like an endurance swim there. And they were just having a great time, and apparently that's just something they do. So well, who was watching for the polar bears? <laughs> I, good question. I'm sure, <laughs> I am sure that they had a couple of them back, like, watching the polar bears. Knowing them, they could probably just, like, you know, rush they, to shore, whip out the rifle, and take out the polar bear all in one fell swoop. Who knows? I just always wonder, like, who watches the watchers? Watchers, you know? yeah, right? <laughs> But yeah. that, that kind of spoke to me about them. They were, yeah. they were hardcore. I, I valued them a lot. <laughs> I love that. I love that story. And I love that there are women like that offering stories to us. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, another theme that I wanted to mm-hmm. draw us toward at this moment is kind of another human element of the narrative that kind of continues throughout the travelogue that you touched on a little bit earlier about, you know, the human effect on the landscape mm-hmm. in terms of the garbage and other things that you see and yeah. um, watching the glaciers recede and how mm-hmm. that marks time and mm-hmm. other things that are sort of going on at the same time and even um, talking about like you know the, the seed vault 
Mm-hmm. And I think of the recent news of, you know, like how that's a human attempt to hold on to things, but yeah. it's not perfect because, you flooding. know, it's flooding. And so... And it's in Svalbard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your exploration in that and, um, you know, the mm-hmm. human effects on things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the human effects on things were everywhere, considering it was so sparsely populated. The history of the, the mining settlements is right there. And because those mining settlements, like I said, some of them have been abandoned and then reclaimed, it's like decades of this history is leaking everywhere. There's mine tailings and mine ruins and everything. And the whaling history is all over. A couple of the photos I have in the book, that was one thing I really appreciated about the book. I was allowed to put black and white photos from the trip throughout it yeah they're gorgeous so, i love mm-hmm. them and you took those all i took the photos yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so that was that was a really uh, gift to be able to do that and some of the photos in the book are the bone beds from the whaling stations mm. so there's the other element of human history and there's the bone beds are so big you can see them when you're out in out at sea you can see these kind of white like bleached white bone beds just firing under the sun because it's so bright during the summer hmm. um and then the tourist history, and like I said, yeah, the garbage and the remnants, you have to be so careful what you leave behind. You can't really drop anything. Everything has to come with you. So it was this peculiar sense that you are kind of celebrating that landscape and how utterly different it is from anything else you've seen and also mourning at the same time that there's nowhere that human does human settlement doesn't touch. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing this stuff washed up from who knows where around the world. And then thinking also about the connection back home and thinking about the boreal forest. I mean, our farm is up at the very southern edge of the boreal and already there's, you know, gravel pit, there's there's oil and gas, there's um, all sorts of industrial development and stuff creeping up that way. And so thinking about Hmm. what's happening to the environment where we are and seeing some through lines with human impact from the Arctic back home. Yeah, I thought that was a really Mm -hmm. intelligent um, tie in that uh, with any journey, there's the return home, and so the, right. you know you have the mm. songs to the boreal um, section of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just to talk about the forest fires and that feeling, and like especially with the recent summer and how yeah. um, even that effect came to Edmonton and a lot of right. Western yeah. Canada. Right. Yeah. Um, and I was hoping maybe that you could touch on what you hope people will take away from the poems that you're sharing and like these mm-hmm. connections that you're making between climate change, you know, what's, mm-hmm. what's, what is the reaction that you want people to have or. Mm, I think mm. probably twofold. I mean, one that it is happening. Um, I saw it firsthand up in the Arctic and it was, you, you're prepared intellectually, but you are not prepared how much it blows your heart out when you see it, when you see the glaciers push back like that, when you see that garbage everywhere. And, um, yeah, it, so that it is very real. And then I come home and I see the impacts of it as a farmer out on the land with, you know, the in- increasingly unpredictable weather cycles and systems and flooding. And mm-hmm. so when people say climate change isn't happening, I'm like, well, hang on a second. <laughs> yeah, tell me from two sides of the world. Yeah. <laughs> Hold up. This, this angry farmer would disagree with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and also to not take it for granted mm. just because these landscapes are out of out of regular reach, don't take them for granted. I mean, we often just see them on the internet. That was my only experience of yeah, the Norwegian Arctic before yeah. I left, right? I might never get the chance to go back. Um, that whether they're in your sort of regular routine or not, whether you move through those spaces or not, that to be respectful of them and to know how interconnected they are. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever, you're, you're over on the ocean and... Halifax or something, you chuck that cup into the into the water. Who knows where it's going to end up? Right. Yeah. It was it was just phenomenal <clears throat> seeing how far some of the trash had traveled. Well, I mean, you found out where it ends up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Spitsbergen. Who knew? Yeah. Svalbard. In the Svalbard. Yeah. So just yeah. to think really carefully about the spaces that we inhabit, and that just because somewhere is halfway across the world and seems like a moonscape, it is very very similar mm-hmm. in so many ways to. To this place, to this home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a good mm-hmm. thought that I, I hope people take away from when they read the collection as well. Yeah. Um, so I feel like this is the opportune time to maybe talk a little bit about um, your off-grid farm and all mm-hmm. of the work that you've been doing to manage and build it and, you know, how that 
feeds back into the concept or the idea of having a writer's retreat. And so, you know, there's all these different parts of your life that are really connecting. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you, can you talk to us a little bit about the tie-ins that you see between the, the Arctic, the North and the off grid, the off grid farm? Yeah, definitely. Um, the farm has been something that <laughs> has grown by leaps and bounds on us. We just started off back in 2006 wanting to live a simpler kind of life. We were sick and tired of the city and we wanted to build towards a point where we can be out there full time. And also just wanted to be more responsible mm. for our food and for our impact on the planet. Um, so over the years we've been putting in solar, we've been working with a good friend of ours who is an amazing carpenter. Uh, we designed the plans for our farmhouse and our, hopefully, what will be our little mm-hmm. writer's retreat cabin. Mm-hmm. And he built them from local materials. Mm-hmm. So we've been trying to kind of support the local economy, build local food systems. Um, just get to know a place as well. My husband and I both come from away. I come from England. He's from Holland. So getting to know a space, and it felt really important to build that space with our own hands if we were going to fit if we were going to earn a spot in the community that's already there. Mm-hmm. So we've got so many layers of neighbors and narratives, indigenous, settler history of various you know, generations of various decades. Um, we felt like we needed to do that by, you know, with our own two hands so that we, we kind of carved out our own spot. Um, and so it's been a growth experience. It started off very small, but then as we started building the farm, we learned how many people were interested in that. Right. And so the community built as the farm built. And thinking back to what I was saying about global warming and climate change, just this past summer, we had to move our entire farm right. from one end of our property up to the hayfield at the other end of the property. Um I hate that term, property. Anyway, mm. uh, the land. Mm. I don't like that term at all. I think of us as caretakers rather than owners. Yeah. Mm. Um, but, and because we were flooding, our county has been flooding and flooding and flooding, and we thought you can only rebuild a space so many times before mm. the heart is gone out of you. So we moved the whole farm, and there's this amazing sense of hope that's just come back to mm. us in that space, which is, has been absent for a couple of years now, and we didn't realize how much it was seeping away until we rebuilt and moved into this incredible new space a little bit higher ground and suddenly the desire to to be out there again in all the seasons is there and and also we're way more aware of how much that ecosystem is changing the boreal forest is changing we saw that this summer with the wildfires we saw that a few summers ago with fort mac burning down Mm -hmm. um the fact that we don't allow the, the the forest to go through their natural cycle of burn and regrowth and then we have these catastrophic fires. Yeah. And we're living at the very verge of that. So we see that all the time. There are summers where we're surrounded by wildfires. Wow. So you're really thinking about what is the future on this space going to look like? How, how are we going to interact with the land when we control it in such a way that we don't let it go through these cycles? And then we blame it for when these huge fires erupt or these floods erupt. It's, it's not happening by some other means. It's us. Mm. So it really, it really drives that home. And so the writer's retreat, I think, is something we've longed to do for quite, a, quite some time, but also coming back from that experience in the Arctic and just thinking how amazing it was to be in that incredible landscape and thinking about, wow, the boreal forest too is a pretty incredible place. Yeah. You know, it's got its own cycles. It's got its own patterns. It's a landscape that needs to really be deeply watched and learned and I feel like I could have like 10 lifetimes and not have enough time to scratch it, scratch the surface. But just being able to give people the chance to come out to that place and mm. just experience it. We've got some old growth boreal forest there that's never been touched, it's never been turned. Um, and we want to make that space available for artists because it was something that was so generative for me overseas. And I thought, if we can do that here, that would be, it feels like paying it forward. Yeah, for, for opportunities like Svalbard, mm. you know, it seems very poetic. Yeah, <laughs> I like the collect the connection between you know the, the giving back yeah. towards the opportunities that you've received and mm-hmm. everything, yeah. and how that's sort of cyclical. Yeah, mm-hmm. and time is marked so much by the ice, and that was one thing I learned about the glaciers. And um, the old ice is the gray ice. 
And so when you see a glacier and you see those kind of ragged gray edges, those are the, those are the pieces of ice that hold the history. Some of them have been around for hundreds of years. And when a glacier calves suddenly you have this incredible blue new ice. Mm. And it looks like it's been dyed. It's so vivid. And that's the ice that's mm. just been untouched. And I kind of took it a step farther. Like, I'm pretty sure you can't look at the, the old <laughs> ice and go, well, that was the fire of whatever year, you know. But it's just that idea that the land, the, the, the earth recalls everything we do to it. Mm-hmm. Everything. We think wow. that it's just inanimate, that whatever we do just kind of rolls off somehow, you know. But there's a record of everything that we do, and sometimes it's good to be able to see that right in front of your face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I the face starts off with the epigraph from John Muir. Thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wilderness is, ne- is a necessity. To watch a glacier calve is to watch time run in both directions at once. The gray face is the old ice pitted with history. The blue face is the fresh ice, brilliant and unscarred, razor-edged and untouched. On deck, I watch the berg slew windstruck, swing its keen blue face away from land. Calving is a funny thing, birth and death gnarled inseparably. The new berg is a small knell for the glacier cracking its spine along the strait. Each summer a little thinner, ice bruised by a malignant swell of mountain coming clear beneath. In a scant decade, there will be only rock. The sway-backed ridge of the glacier will be as much a memory as the whale pods darkening the inlets along Svalbard's flank. Birth and death, companion sides of the card. Up from Port Longmuir, the Svalbard seed vault blunts its snout from the permafrost, stuffed with India, the ripe heart of the tropics. Mango and quince, rattlesnake bean, fennel, In this doomsday refrigerator, we trust our luck and double down. Millions of seeds packed into the frigid heart of the hill, waiting for that indistinct time after the glaciers have gone, shed their pockmarked faces into the fjord. Whatever that world resembles, we imagine rosemary and persimmon, white pine weeping with gum. Our vault a hedged bet, a long con. We are in this for the win. Past Antigua's hull, calved bergs float janist-faced, wind bellying them out into the bay, crooked gray shadows back-cast. The blue crags of their birthplace already sun-slagging, gleam weathering to runoff sheen as we watch. The old ice on these mountains carries centuries, the guides tell us. When the others tire and go below deck, I linger at the railing, imagining Mount St. Helens, Bikini Atoll, and Nagasaki, the gunmetal glide of uranium from Canada's north. What we are capable of when we hollow the earth, small gods with hammer and tongs, refineries and their atmospheric smear. In our hands, Vulcan's desire to fashion in his own image, a cacophony of voices forming under his fingers, a face pinched from the clay, distant muttering from a tight-jointed box. Bright-eyed Pandora and her cargo of assassins. Somewhere in this ice, Dachau plumes dark against the blue. London burns from a shop on Pudding Lane. I picture the ice sharding and Vesuvius issuing forth in a charred waft, the withering Harmattan over the water from Marrakesh, a captain of brittle wings. New ice glares blue through the Svalbard dusk, the never-setting sun. What will our record be, this clean face splitting, shape-shifting in looking-glass slides? Ragged Syrian fields driving the farmers to Damascus, Cascadia popping her knuckles along Quequesot and Clam Gardens, soot plumes from the Paragominus as the Amazon burns, arsenic flares outside Accra where the western computers burn. What will this face remember? A Bastille Day truck attack in France, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando dust and drought in the camps at Kigeme. Perhaps it will see the future rattling by like a deck of cards, sharp shuffle, dab hand, ice thinning over a rictus of rock. Wow. Thank you, Jenna. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, and just thank you for talking with us today Mm -hmm. about your poetry, your experience in a strange place. (laughs) and um, just sharing your worldly wisdom 
We want to again thank Gervinder Batia mm-hmm. uh, and the Writers Guild of Alberta for for being amazing partners and supporting the podcast. Um, and to keep up to date on the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at Let's underscore Lit, and you can subscribe and listen to the podcast on AudioBoom.com and more places where you listen to your favorite podcasts. But um, aside from all of that. I feel deeply honored to have had this conversation with you today, and I think Matthew agrees. I do. Yes. I do. Yes. All right. Yeah. (laughs) So why don't we have a a cheers to, to end the evening? Sounds good.